The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Cork's 96 FM. 1850-715-996, the number to call. The text to WhatsApp, 083-396-9696. Your email, opinion at 96fm.ie. Uh, Twitter at Opinion996, of course. And the Facebook page, the Cork's 96FM Facebook page. Send us a message that way. Uh, mark it for the attention of the Opinion Line. 24 hours on from yesterday when we were speaking pretty much for all of the programme on the Mother and Baby Homes report. That that really dominated our discussions yesterday. And I, I, we intend to pursue it further this morning because we've had another chapter in the uh, release of the Taoiseach's apology uh, yesterday afternoon. We'll also look at COVID-19 and vaccinations. Just when might you get your vaccine? Stephen Donnelly, the Minister for Health, saying that about four uh, million people will have gotten their vaccines by the mid to end of September. There's also a possibility that could speed up and we might get more of us vaccinated by the summer. We'll we look at that. Uh, by the way, was it just me that saw him? It looked like it looked like it being very rude to the uh, Deputy Count Corla yesterday. Being, he looked like he was being very rude uh, to Catherine Connolly in, in the doll yesterday. Did anybody see that video? It was flying around social media last night. Anyway, that and more a bit later on. But like we said, the report was published on Tuesday. Yesterday we discussed how people were reacting to it. Uh, 3,000 pages. It's a big, long, bulky report. I, I heard this morning that there is a shorter version that will be compiled that people who want a copy of it can get by post. I think you can also get the full version of it, but the there'll be a shorter version compiled that people can get, about 300 and maybe 350 pages, all again. In the fullness of time, that's being compiled by the department at the moment. But again, as we were trying to, or as people with an interest in this, were trying to absorb the contents of the report and popping from this chapter to that chapter and looking for reference to this or that, which was of interest to to you individually. While all that was going on, the Taoiseach was having his apology scripted and yesterday afternoon he went into the doll. Wayne, you can run, roll it, roll there. He delivered his apology. The report presents us with profound questions. We embraced a perverse religious morality and control, judgmentalism and moral certainty, but shunned our daughters. We honoured piety but failed to show even basic kindness to those who needed it most. We had a completely warped attitude to sexuality and intimacy, and young mothers and their sons and daughters were forced to pay a terrible price for that dysfunction. To confront the dark and shameful reality which is detailed in this report, we must acknowledge it as a part of our national history. And for the women and children who were treated so cruelly, we must do what we can to show our deep remorse, understanding and support. And so on behalf of the government, the state and its citizens, I apologise for the profound generational wrong visited upon Irish mothers and their children who ended up in a mother and baby home or a county home. Now, it was quite a long speech yesterday by the Taoiseach, but that's pretty much the gist of it. Um, and I wonder if you are either an activist uh, 
or if you're someone who was in Besbra, born there or had a baby there, uh, does it stand up for you? If you're someone, for example, who has a baby or had a baby and you don't know what happened to that baby, if your baby was one of the nearly 900 that remains unaccounted for at Besbra, was that enough for you? Was it anything like enough for you? If you're one of the women who was denied access to an aesthetic or, or told that she was damaged goods now or told that nobody would want her now or no one would care about her now, is that enough for you? I really would like, I really would like to know. I want to talk to Noelle Brown. Noelle wrote uh, a play a number of years ago called Postscript, which was a very moving account of, of the search for her own roots and her own story, because Noelle is also what we've come to know as a Besborough baby. Noelle, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. Let me address th- those questions to you. Sure. Was there anything in that apology yesterday that caused you to say, thank you, Tishuk? Um, I suppose, uh, and I went back over it again, the the word shame leapt out at me because um, it is something that we've been loaded with as adoptees and as birth mothers. And it, we've spent years trying to shift it because society reflects that back on you all the time. I mean, I don't mean society, I actually mean the state reflects it back on you, as does the church. And to remove that shame is quite difficult. And I, when I heard the word shame, I thought, okay, here we go. Because through much of the speech, I, you know, it's words, it's fine phrases, it's all those things. And I think in a week, we're all so emotionally charged uh, between anger and sadness. Um, we are looking for, you know, real understanding and recognition of how difficult this week is from the state. Uh, but he said this, the, the apology and the shame... The shame um, belongs to us. Um, the shame belongs to the state and the Catholic Church. That's where the shame is. We've carried that shame for long enough. It isn't our shame. But that really wasn't stated, so it could have gone further with that. Also, the end of the apology there that you played, um, it's from the apology was from the government, the state, and its citizens. Again, I don't think the government should be apologising on behalf of its citizens. As I said recently, the citizens have spoken in terms of the repeal campaign, in terms of the support this week alone. They support us as survivors, particularly in our in our dealings with the legacy that we've been left from the mother and baby homes and from the institutions. The legacy is that we are still struggling for our identity. We are still struggling to be heard. And this week was, unfortunately, and I welcome that the report was published. I welcome that there was some attempt but it didn't really, you know, it didn't really help us. It was the even giving our testimonies. There were sections that had been taken. My own testimony by the confidential committee was inaccurate. There was never a really great sense of listening to survivors. Mm. So for me, the apology, it didn't really, it didn't really affect me in any great way. Um, and what needs to happen is a real ownership of the shame by this state and, you know, by the government and by the Catholic Church. And until we have that and a real acknowledgement, and apologies are powerful, they do help to heal, but it needs to go further. It also, to me, I would sacrifice an apology for action, you know, for how, things how to happen. How could it go further? What, what could they do now, Noel, to demonstrate that they genuinely 
are sorry? Open up our files. Give us our birth certs, our medical records, our birth information. As simple as that. Give us the privilege that every other Irish citizen has because that's the legacy we're left with. There's a sense that we want to shut down history. We'll wash our hands of it. We'll print a report. We'll apologise and it's all done. It's not. We as adopted people and birth mothers are still dealing with this every day of our lives. We are searching for information. We are being ignored. I spent from 2002 until the end of 2019 trying to source information that you, PJ, and everybody else in this country takes for granted, unless you're adopted, unless by an accident of birth you were born in a mother and baby home. And until we apologize for that legacy, until we remove the effects of that legacy, we cannot move forward. And it is what we've been asking for for a very, very long time. And the talking around another piece of legislation, another piece of legislation, give us the privilege that everybody else has. Give us equality. Give us choice. That's there, the there is more a important than apology. Noel, there is a suggestion, and indeed some great legal minds have poured over this, uh, yeah. including uh, in, in his time, the late Brian Lenehan, who was a senior counsel, and he got responsibility for this area for a brief yes. period of time. And I remember meeting Brian himself as part of the Know My Own group. And yeah. he said, there, he said, there is a legal minefield with this. And he said back then, it might take a referendum. If it takes a referendum, should there be a referendum? No, not a referendum, for heaven's sake. It's, it's, it's our birthright. It's our, mm. it's, our, it's our human rights. The Court of Human Rights have acknowledged that. There is no legal. I mean, I've heard that all my life as well. Oh, mm. we can't well, there was nothing the ever in the legislation. There was never no, anything there's nothing in the, in the Constitution no. to deny us yeah. our rights. This is just political flim-flam. That's all it is to delay. There is no reason in the world. Even we now have a lot of legal minds behind us who are saying exactly the same thing. Say, not what Brian Lennon was saying, but saying there is no impediment in law mm. or anything to not allow us that. And what the government say, well, it's about privacy and balancing rights of privacy. We've seen a glaring example of their real, you know, coping with privacy in light of the, the, you know, the leak of of the report before the survivors saw it. They have not held true in those things. So in terms of... There seems to be this fear out there and has been stressed or expressed to me many times. There seems to be this fear out there that there'll be a... A, a procession of, of birth mothers who don't want to be identified, who don't want any information to be given out into the courts to try to stop it from happening. Do you see that as a scenario? Um, no, I don't, to be quite honest. I mean, the thing is, PJ, in reality, we've been dealing with this all our lives before the government got involved, before there was any outcry for our rights or anything else. People have been going into the GRO, the Birth, Marriage and Deaths Office originally, looking up, finding, piecing together information and mm. building a, a profile of their identity and dealing with whether they would be, a birth mother would want contact or not want contact. We are adults now. I mean, stop infantilizing us going, oh my God, if we give this information to the adoptees, it's going to go run mad around the country, you know, contacting people who don't want to be contacted. That is a ridiculous attitude. And it's infantilizing of us. We are in charge of our own lives. It's insulting, of the people people that I met and I know. Absolutely. And there's also the sense that it's about contact. It's about contact. Sometimes it's just about information. And when you're denied that information, the, the need for it doesn't go away. 
would allow us control over our lives. There's no family in Ireland that is dictated to by the state in terms of whether they like it or not. We are still families. We may be separated, but there is no family that is dealt with by the state to go, you can't contact that relative because we've decided we're not going to give you the details. It makes utterly no sense. Let us make up our, let us make our own decisions and let birth mothers make their own decisions. There is, a, there is, there is this concept of us that we are not capable of dealing with the information and we might use it badly. That is complete discrimination and inequality and against our human rights. Mm, mm. There is this scenario that is painted and indeed I, I will say that in my own years involved Noel, I have spoken to one or two people, say, say a, a woman who had a child back in, in the 70s and the child yeah. is now an adult and has all the information and has all yeah. the detail and, and an intermediary would, would make the approach to the woman mm-hmm. and the conversation would be, well, look, I, 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 yes, that, that is my child. I, I did have a child, but I've never told anybody about it. It would ruin my marriage. It would end my life. I would be terrified of anybody ever finding out. Now, that terror was inflicted upon them by the nuns. But they would be yeah. terrified to have that find, found. Does that temper at all the, the, the campaign to get the information and get the files opened? Well, I know people in that situation that you're talking about, you know, that they're in, they have a contact with a birth mother, but the, birth, but the families don't know that this girl exists. That's, that's how it is sometimes. But it is worked out. It is a conversation that happens. There are situations where a birth mother says, I don't want contact. The, the adopted person accepts that. We're not monsters. And there is this sense of othering of us that we are, you know, we're, we're not to be trusted. There's a, there's a perception of us. By the way, we're not all the same. We all have mm. different stories and different needs and different ways of coping with the information we get or the responses that we get from birth families. And I think that needs to be remembered. We are capable of dealing with our own lives. Since the 1970s uh, in the United Kingdom, it has been the right on reaching the age of 18 of someone to go back to their adoption agency and get their file and and find out everything that's on file about them. People have wanted that here for a long time. Is that what you still want, Noel? Of course, absolutely. Absolutely. And I know people who who were born in England, you know, in that system, who rang, you know, the way I did the first time I picked up the phone looking for information, and they had all their information within an hour. That's how it should be. You know, where you were born, what your name was, who you were born to, it's basic information, and we should be allowed it. Um, And there's no country in Europe that does what it does to adopted people here. Uh, the denial of our birth certs and everything else and trying to piece together information, struggling with TUSLA, uh, the misuse of GDPR to prevent us from getting information. There's no other country in Europe that does that. And it's a disgrace. It's 2021, for heaven's sake. I mean, when I started my search in 2002, I didn't know it was going to take until the end of 2019 to actually finish that search. And only then by going down the DNA route because I've been so battered by the system trying to get information. It, it's disgraceful. I and mean, we, we know this, but that's what needs to happen because that is the legacy we've been handed by virtue of an accident of birth of being born in a mother and baby home or a county home. That is the legacy. And we need to redress that. We need to get rid of that legacy if we truly want to move forward, if we truly want to make amends for the past. That is the most important thing right now. And we don't need a is referendum. Is that how Micheál Martin and Ronnie Crow-Gorman, is that how they actually apologise? Yes, for me. 
yes for me uh, and also and I think Roger Gorman may have done that I haven't looked at his apology yet but to acknowledge the collusion between the state and the Catholic Church there was an awful lot of society blaming this week which didn't sit comfortably with me because the support we have from society now all through the repeal the seal campaign when they tried to seal the records for 30 years uh, has been extraordinary. So the collusion between the Catholic Church and the Irish state needs to be acknowledged. And we're still battling. I was watching, you know, the nuns' response to Bethpera, the, the, the 900 babies that are missing. They can't, le- they can't say with legal certainty where those babies are. Well, have a stab at giving us an idea of where they are. The fact that they're not even being forced to tell us where those babies are is an absolute disgrace. It's a horror upon horror. And I've read sections of the report as much as I can because it is absolutely heartbreaking and I've heard many stories PJ over the years since I wrote that play in 2013 and you know the really sad thing about that play that I wrote with my friend Michelle Forbes is it's still relevant I did it in London in February of last year and there's nothing that had changed everything was the same from 2013 to 2020 and that's a very damning indictment of the treatment of people who were born in institutions in Ireland can I come back to the society thing for a moment, Noel? And you're absolutely correct. In, in, in the last five to ten years, society in general has looked upon this story and realized the horror of what was going on. Yeah. But back in the 60s and the 70s, and even into the 80s, I, as an observer anyway, would contend that everybody knew and everybody played into it. And in that, in that um, context... Society did play a role. The butcher knew. The shopkeeper knew. Everybody knew what was going on in those places, but they kept their mouths shut because they were afraid of the priest. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, And there's no doubt about that. Everybody knew. You couldn't. So did that not feed into it? Into, yes, it did. Absolutely. Most certainly. But I think... I think I think what the government hasn't noticed is that society has moved on and has accepted that they were complicit on some level in it, and they are now acknowledging it. They're not they're not blaming the government. They are standing with us as survivors. They are standing with us against the church and and the state's response to us. And so, but by thereby they are acknowledging their own complicity in it. Of course, we, everybody was complicit. It was part of society, but they are standing with us. And they are trying to make change and they acknowledge that we are, we have to do this as a society and they are ready to support us. And that's the most important thing. And I think the government has missed that, you know, apologizing on behalf of society. Society doesn't need government to apologize on its behalf. It needs to, it needs the government to apologize for the church and the state's collusion in, in creating a very lucrative business of baby selling um, yeah. and separation of families and denial of rights and lying and evasions. And, you know, I was thinking about this last night, the awful thing about this, and even in relation to the transcripts I got from the Confidential Committee yesterday, everybody understands mistakes. We're human. We make mistakes. But acknowledge the mistakes. There's an awful thing in this country where if a mistake is made, it is hidden. It's hidden by another lie, or else it blames the people who are affected by that mistake and calls them out as liars or whatever else they can do to not acknowledge the mistake. And that's an awful damning indictment of state and you know government's reaction to mistakes. Acknowledge the mistakes, fix it, and, and move on. And finally, and, and briefly, and I'll be referring to this again during the morning, the, the 900 babies, or mostly most yeah. of 900 babies unaccounted for. Yeah. Should Besborough be declared a crime scene? Of course it should. 
and so should Tume and so should the other mother and baby homes that weren't even included in, in, the, in, the, in the report. There are mass graves all over Ireland. There are. And how that uh, planning permission was granted for Besborough to build a block of apartments on that is beyond belief. It is horrific. If one baby's remains were found, and I said this yesterday, in a shallow grave or there was a sense that there was a baby there, there would be a criminal investigation. Why not these babies? Their names are known as it is with Tomb, their names, their ages. What is it? And I remember being in Tomb and walking from the town to the site of that where the, where the babies are buried and walking past a fully functioning graveyard that was there at the time, you know what I mean, when that home was operating. And I remember a man turning to me and going, why were they not buried there? It's horrific. It's absolutely horrific. And the trauma for the families and relatives who are looking for their loved ones and knowing that they were denied the rituals. We love funerals in Ireland. We are good at them. Rituals, saying goodbye, you know, marking someone's life, however short, however long. They have been denied that for such a long time. And Tune still hasn't been dealt with. Besborough hasn't been dealt with. And that the nuns as a religious organisation, that the Catholic Church could stand over that and, and not give those babies a decent, respectful burial is beyond belief. Noel, thank you. Thank you, PJ. Noel Brown, uh, 1850-715-996. Rosie was born in Besborough in 1964. I'll speak to her next. Cork loves the arts. We do too. That's why we bring you the Arts House. Every Sunday on Cork's 96FM. Hi, it's Elmerie. Each week we bring you the latest news from our vibrant and creative communities all around Cork. Whether it's tips for the best live gigs online, new initiatives from Cork's writers and musicians, join Elmerie Mall and Connor Tallon as we work to support and keep the arts alive in Cork. The Arts House. Sunday mornings, 8 to 10. With Griffin's Potatoes Cork. Fresh flowery and full of taste. It's at the root of what we do. On Quartz 96 FM. This is Quartz Gold Imro Award winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850 715 996. On Quartz 96 FM. Hi Rosie. Hi PJ. How are you? Good. Born in Besborough in 1964. When yeah. did you finally get information? Um, I discovered two years ago, after years of battling, that my mother has passed on. So I've never actually got to meet her. And I also discovered that I have a half-sister and a brother. And I started my trace, I would say, when I was about 20 years of age. Um, dealing with the main um, sister who was the main social worker in Besborough at the time. Um, this would be through letters of request, through phone calls, and I was fobbed off at every possible opportunity. Um, so it was actually through Tusla, but unfortunately those years of trying, my mother had passed on. In the meantime, she was quite young when she died, um, so I've never had redress or never had an opportunity to meet her. I'm sorry to hear that. 30 years to find the information that I can find, as Noelle was making the point, that I can find in half an hour. Yeah, absolutely. I don't even have to find it. I have it in front of me. Yeah. Now, PJ, my option was slightly different, which I think kind of blocked my trace. My uncle was a very reputable doctor in Cork at the time. I was born in 1964. 
Uh, my parents, when they wanted to adopt, went through him. And he apparently had links in Basborough. He knew the girls who were coming down. So in a sense, I was earmarked for my parents. So I was baptised two days after I was born in Basborough. And the name on my baptismal certificate were the names of my prospective new adoptive parents, which is falsifying of information and against the law. At that time, there was 12 months reprieve where the mother, if she wanted to, could change her mind. So there would have been a 12-month period where, in fact, my parents did not have a legal right to put anything down on paper. And this was, again, to make things smoother for the actual way that they kept their records. Mm. That that line isn't the, isn't the best, Rosie. I'm going to hold it. Just, I'll stick with it as best I can, because we, I, I have a lot that I want to talk to you about. So, listening first of all, when you get the sight of the report on Tuesday, and then listening to what the Taoiseach had to say yesterday, does any yeah. of it cut any mustard with you? No, it doesn't. The report is the report. Um, there is no damage assessment attached to it. There is nothing in the book that we as a group of survivors do not already know. Um, what is insulting, there are two points, is that I could a comprehensive Rosie, Rosie, review... Rosie, Rosie, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to ask the lads there if we can possibly... Wayne, if you can give that line back to the lads, maybe we can clean it up a little bit. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With Lehan Motors, leading the way for Toyota hybrids. The place to order your 211 Toyota. See lehanmotors.ie. Go, go, go. It's the weekend. Yes, it's the weekend. Club 96 is the soundtrack to your Saturday night on Cork's 96 FM. Darren Johnston spins all the biggest hits from 6. Then Rob Allen's got the old school mix from 10. Your Saturday night sorted. Sorted. Cork's 96 FM. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083 396 9696. On Cork's 96 FM. Okay, we tried to clean up that line a little bit with, okay. with Rosie. Thanks, thanks for holding on. Rosie, the question that I asked you there before we went into the break was was there anything in the apology or anything in the report? That, that makes you feel cared about at this stage? Um, no, as I was mentioning to you, the report is just that. It's basically a record of, of what happened. Um, two points. Um, the commission states they, a comprehensive review of adoption was not in the commission's report. Number one, why is this? And this relates back to the falsification of records. The second point that in Besborough, um, the Commission states they failed to keep a record of deaths. 923 deaths were known about um, states. The Commission finds it difficult to understand why no member of Sacred Heart can assist in locating the burial site of children in Besborough. Why is this? Um, that's very important. Um, the apology... While he would like to, as we all know, lay it on the feet of society, at the end of the day, it was day. 
That line is really becoming problematic. Try that again, Rosie, for me. Yes, fine. Hello? Yeah, the, the apology didn't cut it at all. No, not at all. Not at all. Derek, it's okay saying I'm sorry. The redraft needs to be access to our information. And he's talking about national monuments being erected. None of that will sit well with us until we have the right to our identity, the right to belonging, which is a basic human right. And that needs to happen before anything or any other redress can follow on. Talk to me about that. You you born in 1964 and yes. you started about 30 years ago to, yes. to follow the information and try to find out from yes. whence you had come, as it were. Talk to me exactly. about that feeling, Rosie, of spending nearly 30 years wondering yes. the answer to the simple question, who gave me who birth? Who am I? Yeah. So um, I found out when I was seven years of age, um, I was in a convent school in Dublin, and I was making my Holy Communion, and we had to bring in our birth certificates. And, um, I in, and the nun was shouting, your birth certificate, go back and get your private birth certificate. I didn't know what, what was wrong. Um, obviously, it was an adoptive birth certificate because at that point we were illegitimate and we did not have a regular birth certificate like everybody else. And that had to start the conversation between myself and my mother to tell me that I was adopted, which was a shock. Um, I've spent my life wondering who I am um, it's affected relationships. It's affected my trust in people. Um, on the birth of my own children, um, I couldn't relate who they looked like. Um, that, again, was another loss for me. And not being able to put in place a picture or any form of history or that feeling of belonging that all my friends had growing up um, you know, all my friends in school had their family. They would talk about their grandparents, their aunts, their uncles. And for me, it's just this feeling of limbo. Yeah. Displacement, I think, is a feeling that you talk about. What does that mean? Displacement. Well, displacement <clears throat> is this feeling of not belonging, not having that feeling of, of belonging. So basically, <clears throat> at the minute, I'm studying a master's in LIT, in social art practices. And the theme that I've been hiding and I suppose fighting with throughout these years is this feeling of, of displacement. So I am in some way trying to put an art piece around this feeling of displacement and the right to, to belong. Um, it's felt with adoptive children. It's felt with victims of war. It's felt with refugees and people living in direct provision where they have been abruptly taken out of a life situation or indeed have no feeling of those life roots. Yeah, you, you put it extremely well. Finally, Rosie, and I'm so sorry that this line isn't holding for us, but we'll, 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 we'll ask you one more question. Your feelings on the idea that, as we discussed yesterday, there is nothing in this report to stop a bulldozer going into Besbra in a month, in six months' time. How do you feel about that? Exactly. Um, in the report, there was um, testimony by the gardener there 
Um, but that's not sufficient. Um, and I believe that already they are carrying out surveying works on that land. Um, as the report also said, and I repeat, they find it difficult to stand why no member of the sacred consists in locating the burial sites. Um, even if nothing is found on the site, we need peace of mind. We need to know that there are not bodies. And they also know, and I quote, Desborough fails to keep a record of death. That is in fails yeah. to keep a record of death. Yeah, listen, I'm going to have to leave it there, which is a pity because uh, there's so much more I'd like to talk to you about, but the line just isn't holding up. Rosie, thank you very, very much. That's Rosie thank Norton, born in Besborough in 1964, and two years ago she finally found out that her mom had passed away, and she was blocked and lied to and pushed around for nearly... 30 years. She, she makes the point with regard to the, the bodies, you know, 900 babies unaccounted for. Like, where are they? Where are they? Why did the report not push for or recommend a proper investigation? It, it said, in fact, that there was no purpose it saw in excavating or in further examining and, I, and I'm wondering if you think that's acceptable. Like, let us just make up a scenario here. If you went to the guards and you said that you felt there was a body buried in the green opposite your house because you'd seen some suspicious activity there, there'd be a crime scene the following morning. Let's go to Deputy Holly Cairns, who I think wants to take this particular matter further and also wants to talk about redress. Deputy Cairns of the Social Democrats. Hi, Holly. Good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. On that point first, um, there's nothing in this report to give any solace to a, a woman who has never seen or heard of what happened to her child. Yeah, it's difficult to to wrap your head around I think for everybody for all of Ireland over the last few days to understand why stronger actions aren't being taken by government and um, by the guards I think if we're to genuinely respond to this report we have to ensure yeah of course that survivors are given redress um, but also that justice is vigorously pursued that people and organisations who committed these crimes are prosecuted and I think shame on us as a country if we don't do that if we do anything less um, it, it's difficult to imagine, like you say, if an individual, a group or any other organisation committed crimes of this magnitude, there would be police investigations, um, you know, more commissions, all of these things, not just a state apology and an offering of, you know, a medical card only for people who are in institutions for more than six months. It doesn't go far enough and I think everybody knows that. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the apology yesterday, how did you feel listening to that? I think the apology was welcome. Um, it's the bare minimum that the state can do, and it's decades overdue. Um, I spoke about this in the Dáil yesterday, PJ. It comes after decades of silence, decades of shame, decades of misogynistic control and abuse that was perpetuated and facilitated by state authorities and the church, and then government after government after government. And you know, we know Ireland has a history of using shame and fear to control women and their bodies, but the scale and impact of it is truly horrifying 
Um, and I know you were speaking to Noelle and Rosie about the narrative around this report being kind of we one and society being to blame. And of course, society played a part. But the abuse was clearly facilitated and carried out by a powerful state and a powerful religious order who tolerated no opposition. Of course, people objected to it at the time. And I think it's important to remember, that, like, you know, when we talk about kind of sharing the blame, this country was virtually virtually outlawed sex outside of marriage. This was public mm. policy. There was no sex education, a ban on contraception, no access to abortion and virtual immunity for rapists. And that was the structure that the state set up. So pregnancies were inevitable. And when they happened, the girls and women were left with nowhere else to go but these institutions and the state funded them and the religious orders ran them. So you can't blame society for that. And in these institutions, and, you know, it's much better to have people like Noelle and Rosie on talking about it than me. It's the survivors we need to listen to. The worst forms of abuse and neglect were systematically carried out. The scale of infant deaths is actually incomprehensible. It borders on mass murder because, you know, the infant mortality rate was so much higher in there than the rest of society. And not only was the state aware of this, PJ, but it continued to fund it and manage the homes and the religious orders profited from this horrendous cruelty and systematic abuse. We, and we then, should not forget, Holly, that in, in 1948 or 9, uh, a man called Professor Deeney, who was the chief medical officer of the day, if you like, he was the Tony Holohan of his time, uh, he was so shocked by what he saw coming out of Besborough that he wanted it closed down, and it didn't happen. Absolutely. The state blatantly ignored information that was more than enough to close these institutions down. And then we, we also forget as well that it's like, oh, the state are apologising today. The government departments and church officials denied these realities for decades afterwards. And further abuse survivors in doing that opposed any chance of justice until the discovery of hundreds of babies buried in a septic tank and tomb. That's what forced government to establish this commission. So... Yeah. There are no words for the ongoing, we we talk about historical abuse, this is present day. There are no words for this cascade of abuse and criminality perpetuated against women and their children. And I think the last thing survivors need is more in the way of inadequate apologies from men in positions of power. They deserve justice, genuine contrition from state, and they deserve complete and unreserved redress. I think it's important, you know, we're talking about the shame and, you know, blaming society. The shame used to control and incarcerate women and children for the so-called crime of getting pregnant was endemic in society, but it was misplaced. And I spoke about this in the doll yesterday too, that it's time we direct that shame where it belongs. And that is shame on the people who committed these horrendous crimes, shame on the religious orders who oversaw it, and shame on successive governments for facilitating and condoning it. I think for, for a lot of people, for me, learning about the institution of abuse in Ireland is literally the worst thing I've ever come to know. It's hard to think about anything worse. But denying victim and survivors proper justice does come close. It can't happen again. We saw it in the, um, you know, in very recent times when we've seen reports in relation to other institutions abuse in Ireland. We've seen the McAleese report, the Bryan report, the Cloyne report, the list goes on. They were not given proper redress. We had this exact, I almost feel like we're seeing it play out again in front of our eyes. A state apology promises to do things that are not adequate, like a medical card. And this medical card is given out ex gratia, which means it's like a compliment of the state rather than what people are entitled to due to wrongdoing of the state. Mm. It's always dressed up in these ways that simply aren't good enough. After the Ryan report, in order to get redress, some people had to sign 
what was called a gagging order. Yes. They couldn't speak yes. out about their experiences. The church didn't pay up in relation to all of their compensation. And also, I think it's important to note, Davey, that an organisation who facilitated the worst kind of human rights violations imaginable still has any hand actor part in our schools and hospitals is deeply disturbing. And it is it diminishes the, the level of abuse that they carried out against these survivors. For survivors to see this organisation still you know, helping to run things like our schools and hospitals after what they've done. It's, okay. it's an absolute disgrace and the government needs to go so much further in terms of actually addressing this. Um, and in terms of more specific things that I think would be that the government actually needs to do, um, and I know um, Rosie and Noel mentioned it, but access to records legislation must be introduced immediately. Um, all people in Ireland have to be guaranteed access to their birth certificate. They were talking yesterday about bringing this in within the next year. That's simply unacceptable. They had no problem rushing through legislation in relation to the Mother and Baby Homes Commission report in October. They did it very, very quickly without pre-legislative scrutiny. Of course they can rush this legislation through. They do it all of the time. And in addition to that, we need a national archive of institutional adoption and other care-related records. And the government must also change litigation procedures so that it's easier for people to access courts. A dedicated criminal investigation human and um, unit and human rights compliant coroner's inquest must be established and crucially survivors of abuse must have statutory rights to compensation and all rehabilitative supports and the state should also do all within its power to encourage the religious orders and church hierarchies to acknowledge responsibility and participate in the process of making repatriations for the damage caused by the church's treatment of unmarried women and their children. Holly, I'm out of time. I will leave it there at that point. And thank you very much for being with us on the Opinion Line. Holly Cairns, Social Democrats TD for Cork Southwest. Uh, the Minister for Health is quoted in the Irish Times today as saying that 4 million people will have their COVID-19 vaccination jabs by the end of September. 700,000 by the end of March, including uh, thousands of healthcare professionals and indeed the most vulnerable. Uh, Dr. John Sheehan, good morning. Morning, PJ. John, have GPs, who you would consider to be the front line on the front line, as it were, um, have you been vaccinated yet? Most have, PJ. I received my vaccine um, a week ago in the South Infirmary, and the South Infirmary were brilliant in doing this. Um, what they did is they were able to source the vaccine, they had enough for their staff, and they reached out to local GPs and were able to vaccinate them. And they were the pictures you saw uh, over the weekend, PJ, of long queues outside the South Infirmary where they were able to vaccinate GPs, and GPs in Cork were very grateful for that. Our staff haven't been vaccinated, practice nurses and receptionists, and they very much are exposed um, to patients, obviously, um, in the context of COVID. Um, They have registered, but it'll be a few weeks before they um, will be vaccinated. Nursing homes are rolling out as we speak this week and next week around Cork. I know a number of Moncara has been done today and I know Farnley and a number of other ones have been done in the next week or so. Um, the biggest shortage of this is the availability of the vaccine. It's the Pfizer one at the moment. The Moderna mm. one, we only have a tiny amount, 1,500 or something. And then the, what people feel the big game changer will be with the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine because yeah. that can be given like the, like the flu where it's held in the fridge for a long period of time. Yeah. Um, 
people they look across the UK and they see the numbers be vaccinated there and the difficulty we have here um, is supply because we're about three to four weeks behind in terms of approval through the European mm. Med- Medicines Agency. So as the vaccine coming in, to be fair, it has been given out. And I know they are setting up uh, large vaccination clinics for when things become available, PJ. I know the concert yeah. hall in City Hall, where you stood for many an election count, um, will be, uh, they're looking at that now and setting up a vaccination centre there okay. where when the vaccine becomes available. So they are putting the plans in place. It's purely a supply issue at the moment. And, and do you know when that supply might ramp up to a point where you could open a centre like that? They don't is the honest answer. I, I, I along with two thousand of my GP colleagues, were on a two-hour webinar last night about the vaccine. And the only supply we have guaranteed at the moment is, uh, in terms of timing of delivery, is the Pfizer vaccine. The others have been pre-ordered, but until they're approved, until the AstraZeneca one is approved by the European Medicines Agency, we can't put in a timeline in terms of when that's going to... There is a kind of a thing where the the government themselves could grant an emergency licence, could they not? They can, but they've, they've made the decision they're going to do this on a European basis. They're going to advance purchase it in terms of a European basis and they're going to approve it on the European basis. Yeah. And the logic of that is that they, which I can understand, although it's frustrating, is that they didn't want individual co- uh, countries outbidding each other. So Germany suddenly coming in and throwing its weight around and outbidding yeah. our little old Ireland and Portugal and things like that. So to be fair, they have held the line and I think that's probably the correct way to go. Okay, so realistically, if we can get the numbers down through the public health restrictions with which we're currently trying to to live and get the vaccines ramped up in parallel, we should be out of trouble, as it were, John, or out of the worst of it by, what, August, September? Yeah, that's probably the correct timeline, um, because if you think about it, we're giving uh, approximately 8 million vaccine doses. Um, so that's a huge, uh, you know, the, you hear about the flu campaign every year. That's half a million to a million, half a million. On a typical year, a million with a big push. This is 8 million. So you know, this vaccine will be given and the versions of it will be given in big clinics, in places like City Hall and other big centres. It will be given in pharmacies as it rolls out. It will be given in GP surgeries. It will be given in special clinics and hospitals. You know, it'll be a massive campaign um, and they are ratcheting it up and they are putting plans in place, to be fair. Like all your listeners, PJ, you know, you kind of want it done as soon as possible. You want it done today. But the reality is it's going to take a number of months. So I think you're talking about all this realistically before it's the whole thing is, is really, you know, it's again, you know, the whole our society. Has, well, you know what, at least, at least there's the end of it is in sight, which this time... Last year or shortly after this time last year, we had no idea when, when that would be. John, thank you very much as always. Thank That's you, John. Dr. John Sheen, uh, Fianna Fáil Councillor for Cork North Centre. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Cork's 96 FM. 1850-715-996, the number to call, the text to WhatsApp, 083-396-9696, your email, opinion at 96fm.ie. Just listening to the Premiership update there. In the sports news, reminds me to tell you that you can join Trevor Welsh on 96fm.ie this Saturday for Premier League Live. It's exclusively online and powered by TalkSport. And on Saturday, Trevor's got Wolves versus West Brom at half 12. West, West Ham v Burnley at 
Fulham against Chelsea at half five and Leicester against Southampton at eight o'clock. Four matches, four live matches on Premier League Live online with Now TV streaming live Premier League action with a Now TV Sky Sports or Sports Extra Pass. And listen every Saturday on the Cork's 96FM app or go to 96FM.ie. We're, after 11, we'll be catching up with um, D- Professor Jack Lambert, who has some thoughts on the rollout of the vaccination programme. We talked to uh, John Sheehan there before 10 about how the GPs have got it, but the practice nurses haven't got it yet. That's an anomaly, if you ask me. What is the point, for example? And absolutely, Dr. John and many other doctors like him should have their vaccination but why not the practice nurse at the same time? Why not bring the whole staff from John's practice or anybody else's practice, Nick, Flynn pra- Nick Flynn's, Flynn's, Flynn's practice or anybody else? Sorry, I'm getting tongue-tied here. Why not bring all of the people from a medical practice and vaccinate them in one go? Just doesn't make a whole pile of sense. Bring that up and other things with Jack Lambert a little bit later on. By the way, if you missed any of our first hour, and we will come back to mother and baby homes later also, if you missed any of our first hour, don't forget that the podcast for the show goes up every afternoon. You pick it up first on Twitter. We'll tweet the link once the podcast is uploaded, and then you'll find it on the Quark's 96FM app or indeed on the website or anywhere else that you choose to get your podcasts. 1850-715-996. Have your dreams been a little bit crazy over the past few months, you know, being being locked up in the house for days and weeks on end or, you know, not being able to get out and see friends, the frustration, the the, the loneliness, the isolation of it all, um, the, the annoyance of looking out and you're doing your best and others aren't and obviously aren't doing their best. The things you miss, the things you love, the people you miss, the people you love, is it all interfering with your dreams? Is it normal that it would? I, I mentioned myself to the Queen Bee over Christmas. There was one or two nights over the Christmas break that my dreams were the queerest of all time. They were mad. Couldn't, bother, couldn't begin to relate them to you. But they were mad. And not only were they in colour, they were practically in 3D. Now, now, I don't get these lucid dreams that I can remember the following morning. But I did over the Christmas time. And some of them were just daft altogether. Alison Bourne, uh, dream analysis expert, Alison Bourne Healing, joins me. Alison, good morning to you. Morning, PJ. Thanks very much for inviting me in. Delighted. Just to to bring my own experience to to bear to kick it off, maybe. I, I don't generally dream loosely at all. I dream sometimes, not all the time. But over the yeah. Christmas, some very strange things came into my sleep. Could you give us a little hint as to what they were? They were people that I knew in situations where they could not possibly be. That was the the gist of it. Yeah. Well, obviously we're all suffering from an extra stress at the moment. I mean, that goes without saying that we have COVID on top of whatever is happening in your own personal life. And because it's a pandemic, there's no escaping it. So what we're doing is we're getting on with our normal lives during the day and our unconscious mind is trying to grapple with the extra stress. And a lot of the time it does a very good job and sometimes it has to continue the work when we're asleep because then we get ourselves out of the way, if you like, and the unconscious mind can work more freely. 
And Mm. one of the ways that we do it is to dream about whatever it is that's worrying us. It's called desensitization, that if you dream about something, your um, unconscious mind says, "Okay, I can handle that. You dream about it again, it can handle it a bit better. And eventually you're you're not affected by it. That's the theory. But Mm. because it's such a big stress at the moment, we're not always able to do it in the nice, gentle steps that we normally would. Like, like something, for example, that an unusual one that springs to mind now that I think more about it. Like my, my, my wonderful mother, she would be 80 this year. There's no yeah. way she'd be driving an ambulance, Alison. But she was. That's the sort of thing that our unconscious mind, it never goes in the straight little story like you would if you were awake. So you would, would you mind if I asked you just to give me three words to describe your mother? I don't mean physically, I mean her personality. Um, She's just rock solid and totally reliable. Perfect. And the fact that she was in the driving seat, sorry, the reason I asked you that is because everybody you dream with, dream about is representing you. So because you dreamt about her and the first words that come into your mind are rock solid and totally reliable, it's your unconscious mind reminding you that you are rock solid and totally reliable, that you're not going to do anything to jeopardise yourself within it. And the fact that she was driving an ambulance, to be driving, first of all, is a good sign because it means you're taking charge of your life or your journey or whatever the issue is at the time. You're in charge, you're the the driver. And to be driving an ambulance, you're also helping other people and you're helping the part of you that's feeling overwhelmed and needs to be minded. We all have the different parts, you know. So it's actually a very positive thing that you dreamt like that. Yeah, it just, it it felt so crazy and and I woke up and said, did I really dream that? Yes, and you've mentioned that your dreams have got more colourful or more alive Oh, almost in th- no, they've, they've stopped again now. In- interesting now that I'm back at work, they, they've stopped again, um, and and they were they've just back to the normal blend stuff coming in and out yeah. of my head. But they got they were in 3D, let alone color, and that's very. It makes a lot of sense because when you're at work, you have so many things on your mind, and when you're resting. I- on, on holidays or whatever, your mind has a chance to grapple with the things that it, it was too busy to, to look after. So it makes sense that when you were off, your dream world was more um, active because it could be, because it took the chance. It's all a type of healing. It took a chance to heal and balance you. But, but mm. It grabbed it when it was there. Um, and you so mentioned so the what is a dream, Alison? Oh, it's so many different things. On the, the easiest or the most simple level, it's processing of whatever is going on in your life. Now, by processing, it's like I said earlier, going through it, um, desensitizing, like it doesn't bother you as much the second time or the third time, etc. But also it can often give you answers. You know, the way you put something on the back burner and you wake up with an answer or it just pops into your head when you're not, not expecting it. That's because your unconscious mind is, is going through it in the dream world. We don't always remember the dreams, mind you, yes. because the work is done. We don't need to. But when we yeah, do that, remember that, that, the dreams... It's That's like a strange living. thing, all right. On, on, yeah. I, I do remember that particular, but it's just a flash in my mind of my mother driving the ambulance because it was so yeah. bizarre. But yeah. other ones, I have no memory of them at all. I know, I know when I woke up that I dreamt of queer things, strange yeah. things, but I can't, yeah. I can't draw them back into my consciousness. Well, it, it probably means you don't need to, but if you wanted to, there's a few little tricks that we have to help you to hold on to the dreams until you get a chance to write them down. But you have to write them down because no matter how vivid they are when you wake up, they're gone within a few minutes if you don't write them down. So one of the things, if you wanted to experiment with it, is to not move position when you wake up. 
because the first thing you do when you move position your body is saying I'm awake put away the dream world you know so it gives you that yeah. chance to just hold on to it and to go through whatever story or snippet you were looking at just at that time but there's other little tricks like you can um, tell yourself I mean one of the most powerful things we have is our own mind tell yourself going to bed I'm going to remember my dream in the morning or okay. put a pen and paper beside the bed and tell yourself I'll write down my dreams in the morning these are programming your, your unconscious mind to follow to follow the instruction it may not happen the first time but if you do it a couple of times it gets the message and it may happen the first time of course mm-hmm. A couple um, of people are starting to text in their own questions, as it invariably happens. Steph says, can you ask Alison, what does it mean when I go into this big building? I know I'm taking an exam. I know it has something to do with COVID-19, but I don't see any sign of it on the exam paper or anything to do with COVID. I'm just sitting down waiting for the paper, sweating and fretting. Does it mean anything? Do you know, that is one of the most common dreams that we have being in an exam situation and not having the exam isn't on the subject we've prepared or we haven't been able to prepare or we can't get through the door. It's never you're sitting in the exam and it's going to be easy. And the reason for that is exams are, in, if you're lucky and you have a fairly reasonable life, your exams are the biggest stress in your life in your early forming years. So whenever there's other stress, your brain is trying to say, well, okay, where will I file this stress? Oh yeah, exams. Right. So then you dream of an exam and you say, well, it doesn't make any sense. Well, it does because you're worried about your dog or whatever it is, you know. And the fact that she couldn't, it was really interesting. She couldn't see the, the COVID-19 because we can't see it. You know, <laughs> There's so many different levels in a dream, so many different layers. But mm. that would be one of those, what I would call a processing dream, where your, your mind is just saying, OK, we're dealing with this. This is another help along the way of managing the situation. Mm. There's one that comes up a lot. Um, and again, it's coming in, this, a work-related one. So you're supposed to deliver a presentation or, or chair an important meeting. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, you've forgotten to prepare for it. Everyone is sitting waiting for you to start. You know absolutely not the first words you're going to say. And you and wake up in a panic. Even though it sounds different, it's exactly the same dream. It's exactly the same where you're expected to be able to produce something and you can't. So it's the, it's the same answer. It's the stress. So if you had, if I had the dreamer with me, I would start questioning them about what the room is like. Is it the normal boardroom? Uh, what colours are they wearing? Who's there? And we get more information around the, the scenario, and then we'd find what part of the life are they most stressed about? What, what are they actually dreaming about? Hmm. You know, There's when we talk about re- yeah, Sorry, another work-related one, and again, hmm. it. it it has come in before we were talking about dreams. This this guy rang me one morning. He said, I had this recurring dream and I don't know what it is. I go into work. I'm totally prepared for the day. We have a big day with meetings with everything else. And I realise as I'm about to enter the boardroom, I have no trousers on. Yes. <laughs> Again, is that the same thing? Um, it's a little, well, it's, it's, yes and no. It is partly because it is work related. But the, the fact of being exposed in some way, either totally naked in your underwear or half naked, is all about your own um, confidence in how people receive you. Like, if they really knew what I was like, what would they say? That kind of thing. And it's it's interesting which half is naked. You didn't say naked, there's no problem. But we, we, if you're a man and you're dreaming that you're naked from the waist down, it's, it's to do with the male side of life. It's to do with the part that goes to work that gets up gets decisions made you know the breadwinner the traditional male roles and even if you're a woman it's the same because it's the um 
everybody has an inner male and female. We, we talk about splitting the brain function into male and female, and they are the traditional male and female roles. So if it was a woman feeling that she was naked at work, it would be her female side that she's afraid of being seen, her, you know, caring, um, uh, what else, uh, artistic, creative side that she's afraid of being exposed. So it would be a different um, side of it, a different to. I'm climbing an endless wet set of steps in the pitch dark. I don't seem to be getting anywhere. What about oh, that that's, that's a horrible dream, isn't it? That's really the futility of whatever that person is doing, trying to overcome the issue. And we'd have to talk to them to find out more. Like, even the colour of the steps would be indicative of what part of their life is in trouble. But obviously they're exhausted and they haven't they're still going. I get the feeling, even from what you said, that they're they're running on empty and they're still going. And even wet, it's so dangerous. And wet yeah. water can symbolise emotions as well. So you can imagine that they're very upset about this, whatever the issue is. So we would really have to dig in and see where do they feel so futile and exhausted and try to help that area then. So the other side of what I do is do healing on whatever the issue is with the person. The, the, the lines are hopping here. Uh, my mm. husband passed away two years ago. I dream a lot about him. They're good and bad times we had, but it's strange. I don't know if they're real events that actually happened. Uh, and when my a friend says it's my subconscious mind telling me I'm angry with him for dying. Oh, oh, that's a, a different slant. And um, when you dream of somebody who's passed away, there's a couple of different things could be happening. One is that they're actually coming to visit you. And when that lady says she doesn't know if he is or he isn't, it gives me an indication that he probably is because why else would she have that in her mind? Usually if you think it is, it is. But these things are so subtle. Everybody kind of has their own, they have to make up their own minds on it. But that's called a visitation dream. You see, when you're asleep, this kind of um, resistance that we have, we think we're all very logical and sophisticated and we don't really believe in dreams. But when we're asleep, all that is put aside and we can let... Our, our spiritual friends in to talk to us. So it could actually be a visit from her, her husband or it could be that she's still um, working through the fact that he's not here anymore. I think she said it was only two years ago so of course she's yeah. still um, I hate using the word processing all the time but you know um, yeah. helping to come to terms with the fact that she has a different life now without him. And yeah. she's had different events so we would um, tease into the different events to see if they are significant in some way, if there's something that she needs to let go from different situations they were in in the past. Or maybe the dream itself is doing the work, maybe that's enough. Rebecca says her friend keeps getting a recurring dream about being on an operating table waiting for a knee operation. Now, he had the operation before, but he wakes up sweating and upset. Okay. First of all, you mentioned recurring dreams a couple of times. If the dream is recurring, it means that you need to get the message from the dream. It's not that it has been sorted out. There is another bit of work to be done. So you get the recurring dream so that you get the message. If you don't get the message this time, will you get it the next time or the next time? And if you still don't get the message, you'll end up with a nightmare because we pay more attention to them, you know? So yeah. um, probably, on the, again, there's different lev- levels of dream. On the surface, the, the person who had the knee operation was obviously worried about it beforehand. So that anxiety is still working through and out of his body and his, his unconscious mind. Yeah. I think he said it was Two mad. people calling us about the COVID restrictions and dreaming about COVID restrictions and the effect the COVID restrictions are having. Yeah, and that is very much uh, helping us to stay sane within the, the difficulties that we have at the moment. 
So when it comes into your dream world, you know that you are. You're doing your bit un- unconsciously to help yourself to get through in the best way that you can. It's, yeah. it's reflections of what's going on during the day and letting it ease out of your body because we hold tension in our body, helping it to ease out. More, more people... people yeah. Dreaming of dreaming of situations that would never ever happen in real life. Uh, my sister in law and my mother, and my brother, who are all passed away, they had a, they're having a meal with me. It was a, a COVID restricted meal, like it was at Christmas. Then one of them went out and went to the toilet in the garden. Like, okay. is, these are ridiculous situations here. Oh yeah, because we our dream mind talks in puns and symbols the whole time. But those people, obviously. Um, how should I say this? Death is very much alive for us at the moment. We're more conscious of it than normal times. And everybody's worried about their family to some extent, even if you don't think you are. You know, there's an awareness of it there, you know. So this person is dreaming about family who have passed on. So that's like a, a, a balance to worrying about our family or who are still here. So it's sort of, um, again, coming to terms with it and allowing your, yourself to say it is awful. It is terrible. And there is some sort of balance in my life. Um, going outside and going to the toilet is a very good, very good. First of all, the person goes outside where they're less likely to be hurt by cold, which is less likely to pick it up. And going to the toilet is very good because it's a release of what you no longer need. So the dreamer was processing it and then released it. You know, if the dream said, I was bursting to go and I couldn't find a toilet or the toilet was filthy or all these things that can happen. It's holding on to something that you really need to let go of. But this person actually went to the toilet in the dream. So it's a positive. It's a letting go. Do you know, it's a good job, really, that our our subconscious mind stays subconscious for the most (laughs) part. It's such a crazy place by the sounds. Here's another one similar to the the strange one I had. I was driving with my Uh mother in a car driving up the side of a glass skyscraper. And I asked, was my mother scared or why she wasn't scared? And it calmed me down when she wasn't. Okay. So it is similar to your own one. Um, This time the dreamer is driving, so they're in charge of their life, which is good. If you're the passenger in a car, the question is, why are you a passenger? Is it okay to, you know, but um, in this... This dream, the dreamer's in control. And again, we'd, we'd be interested in the description of the mother to find out the qualities that he's actually zoning in on at the moment. Now, to be driving up a glass skyscraper is just a symbol of the fear that's around. I mean, it'd be very hard to get a grip on a glass skyscraper, of all things, you know. So it's like the fear of slipping. And I would only guess, if know nothing about it, that it's slipping into COVID, you know. But to take the, the courage from the qualities that the dreamer has that the mother shares. So if the mother is always calm and they picked up the calmness, that's helping them not to be scared. If the mother is always inventive and finding new ways of dealing with it, that's what the dreamer concentrates on and helps them to. Um, you're not frightened. You're not as frightened if you're doing something positive, yeah. doing something proactive. Yeah. Um, given that the um, subconscious mind is such a crazy world, are there anything we could do before we go to bed to to maybe keep keep it at bay and stop it from frightening us? Well, I, we wouldn't want to keep it at bay totally because we need to do this in order to to stay sane. But to not have the the disturbing dreams or the nightmares, yes, there are. First of all, one of the the nice little things is to make a list of anything that's bothering you, and just then it's outside of you, and you don't have to think about it. 
and you can pick it up again in the morning if you want to. But it's, it's one way of kind of clearing your mind before you sleep. Another way, and I'd really like people to try this, is to calm your body down before sleep. And it's very simple. It's, um, it's a thing called havening. It's a whole process in itself. But what anybody can do is just put their hands on the opposite shoulders and bring their hands down to the elbow. So they're, they're running their hands down their upper arm. And if you do that, maybe, let's say, 10 or 12 times, it actually changes your brain. There's... Um, these little things in your brain called ample receptors that are alive or they're awake when you're anxious. And if they're not used, they go dormant, they kind of slip back in where they should be. And that's um, stimulating the tops of your arms will cause a series of changes in the um, chemistry in your brain that allows these little guys to go dormant again. And you actually feel calm. It's not just um, a, a nice little process. It calms your whole body then because your, your brain is sending the the chemicals all around the body. So it's a very good thing to do. It also it also increases the delta waves in your brain, which is mm. the, the calm and the, the that's how your brain is when you're having dreams or in deep meditation. So if you do that, it's a very good way of calming the stress so that when you dream, it's about, um, you know, processing again, that awful word again, and working yeah. through without having to be upset by it. Another recurring dream. This is bizarre. My husband keeps dreaming that he's having curry. He hates curry. <laughs> okay. So. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, we'd have to talk to him a bit more about that. But if you're being forced to do something you hate, obviously there's some. Sorry, what's well, obviously obviously there's something going on in his life that he feels compelled to do that he absolutely hates doing. And because it's to do with food, food is to do with survival. It's something quite a big part of his life that is not right for him. You know, um, and again, cooking and feeding are the female side of life. And we know we all have a male and a female side. So it's something on his female side that is not sitting right with him. So it could be he's caring, he has to care too much for people that he doesn't want to. Or um, maybe he is a creative person who isn't getting a chance to express it. Mm. All that side of life he'd have to look at. But probably when he starts to think like that, it'll jump out at him if it's that strong. Waking up afraid, Veronica says my sister wakes up every morning in or around the same time thinking there's smoke all over the house and afraid the place is on fire. What's that about? Oh, again, it's awful, isn't it? To wake up in fear would make you afraid to go to sleep even. Um, What I would suggest to her, the smoke is again, it's a vague threat, but it's a a strong threat because you can die. So uh, I I suggest the COVID knowing nothing else about her. But uh, what I suggest to that person is that they, in their waking time, when they're awake, sit down and imagine that they're in the dream with the smoke and consciously think through a a positive ending. In other words, that the smoke just miraculously clears away or they get up and open all the windows and the smoke goes or they find the source of the smoke and put it out or, you know, any scenario so that Mm. their brain has now got a positive ending so that it's, it's, it's coming at it from a different angle but it's another way of saying it's okay, we're, we're getting through this. 
One, one last one before I ask you a final question on sleep. Bernie has a dream, again it's recurring, of okay. someone who passed away a long time ago, but in this dream, it's a lady is comforting me, has her arm around me, comforting me. What's that about? Well, again, there's a couple of possibilities. One is that the lady actually is visiting her, and only the dreamer will know if it is a visitation dream or if it's a, a regular dream. So that's one possibility that she is actually getting that comfort. Another is that it's um, her female side comforting her while she's asleep. I mean, it sounds strange, but we all do these things. We just don't remember them. Um, and that another thing, again, when I talk about the female side, is if she needs comfort in her life, maybe her female side can present it. In other words, have a look at, are you enjoying things that are creative? I mean, cooking is creative, but there's all arts and crafts. That's creative. But even how you put your outfit together in the morning is creative. Does that need, or not does it need, but she could get more joy from life if she does that kind of thing. Um, what else? We, we, we have loads and loads and loads of these messages coming in and we could stay here all day. We'll, we'll have to bring you back on, 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 on another day. But before I, I let delighted. you go, the question on people's minds is, which is the better night's sleep? The, the night's sleep that goes without a dream that I remember or the night's sleep where my dreams have kept me, as I said, full of colour and even in 3D. Which is the better sleep? Both. Because just because you don't remember the dreams doesn't mean you didn't have them. So we are dreaming. There's a, a, if you weren't dreaming when you go to bed, you would be insane. So anybody who's able to listen to this programme and take in the, the information is dreaming. They just don't remember it sometimes, you know. So they're both good night's sleep. The time that you would say I've had a bad night is if you've been having either very um, strong anxiety dreams or nightmares and you wake up exhausted from it. But in another sense, that's a good night because you've been processing it and you're letting go of a whole load of stress out of your body. So, Alison, you know, have you got a website or a Facebook page? Oh, sure I have. Yeah, alisonburnhealing.com. Alison oh, can Burn I mention Healing. my course? I'm nearly finished please this. Do. Um, please do. It's an online course to learn to interpret your own dreams. So I hope to have that up on the site now within, I hope, within the month. Okay. Alison yeah. Listen, you have got our phones flying this morning. Great. Clearly, I'm not the only one having crazy dreams. We all dream. Christmas. <laughs> yeah. So thank you very much for your time this thank morning. Thank you, PJ. Bye now. That's Alison Bourne, 1850 uh, <clears throat> uh, Andrew says, on a lighter note, PJ, but God, we do need some laughter today after yesterday's very sad and depressing show. Well done to yourself and Terry and Fergal for putting together such a heavy emotional show. Could she please explain how we missed this one for Louise? Could she please explain how Liverpool are having that recurring dream they'll win the league again? (laughs) That's from Andrew. 1850-715-996. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With Lehan Motors, leading the way for Toyota hybrids. The place to order your 211 Toyota. See lehanmotors.ie. The Cork's 96FM Giving for Living Radiothon is back. Our favourite fundraiser returns this May to raise money for Cork Cancer Services. We hope you'll include our Radiothon in your 2021 events calendar. There are many ways to play your part. Organise a virtual coffee break, a no uniform day, or gather all those loose coins with our change collector boxes. 
Stay listening for more details on how to raise funds. The 2021 Giving for Living Radiothon, May 20th to 22nd. Only on Cork's 96FM. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96FM. Yeah, huge response to, to Alison Bourne. And we will. We'll have her on in uh, on another day. And you can ask uh, more questions of her. Fascinating, though. We all do have, and we've all been having these mad, crazy dreams. There's an old Paul Brady song playing in the back of my mind about crazy dreams. But we have been having them. And at least what we learned from that last 20 minutes or so is we're normal. It's a normal part of dealing with what we're all going through at the moment. 1850-715-996. Clodagh Finn is a journalist and author uh, with The Examiner. And she wrote a great piece in the last few days about, or the last while, about bird watching. Now, if you'll remember in the first lockdown, Jim Wilson, our friend from Birdwatch Ireland, was on here with me because we were talking about the first lockdown last year the springtime was beautiful. Spring sunshine and late evenings and early morning and all the spring birds that were visiting our gardens, including, for example, the magpies that were the size of bowling balls. Cloda has written a lovely piece about that, and I'll get to it in just a second. But we also learned when talking to Cloda beforehand that, Cloda, you yourself have been dealing with what we now call long COVID. Good morning. Good morning, PJ. Um, I'm glad to hear that crazy dreams are normal. <laughs> it's good to start that way. Um, yes, I, I appear to be affected by all the issues of the day. Um, I got COVID in March and um, like so many others, I had symptoms of uh, coughing, um, difficulty catching breath. And at one stage, I had to go to A&E. Thankfully for me, I didn't need to be hospitalized. And after two weeks, it went away. But it came back and then it came back again and it came back again. And I suppose now so we're beginning to You had to four doses of COVID. You've had more, four, four more, bouts of it. Well, the symptoms came back. Not okay. the, and that's the characteristic, if you like, of um, long COVID. You get well and then if you actually they found that there's more and more studies now and one of them shows that if you experience stress or if you try to go back to your normal routine working or whatever you get a relapse and that doesn't mean that you're infectious but um, I think the biggest symptom that I'm part of a group with more than a thousand members in Ireland a Facebook group um, and it's like um, a bingo card of symptoms actually people will say Fatigue and breathing difficulties would be the biggest ones. Um, and I'm very lucky. I mean, I can function. But there are, we don't know exactly how many people out there, but they're suffering from a range of symptoms because of this. Mm. Now, so the, uh, you, yeah. you say the way it came back and came back two or three times. Just to clarify one question. If you had been tested in mm-hmm. those, you would have come up negative. Yes, and I was tested, and I did come up negative. Um, but I was part of uh, St. Vincent's uh, Hospital uh, study group, and they say that, yeah, so there are a lot of false negatives 
uh, first of all, in the first instance, people who have it and are infectious can give a false negative. And secondly, then when you're suffering, it's like a post-viral fatigue, actually. Um, when you're feeling those symptoms, you're not going to test positive. Right. So how are you day to day now? Like, can you go back to work and function properly? I wouldn't say I'm 100%. I'm about 60%. And I'm very lucky. I know people who were infected in the first wave in March. And some of them still can't walk up the stairs. Or they'll be okay for a couple of days. And then they'll fall back again. And I suppose it's good to talk about this now as more and more people are being infected. You would hope that most people will have a bad two weeks and get over it. But the statistics that are coming out suggests that 10 to 15% will go on to have long COVID and will continue to have symptoms which are like post-viral fatigue or chronic fatigue symptoms for a number of months. Nobody knows really how long it can last. Yeah, there was a piece in the medical journal, The Lancet, last week, the week before, and they also... I read about some research coming out of, of Wuhan, where it all started back yes, in China. Yes. People with symptoms months and months and months later. I suppose I want to say something positive about that too, because if anybody is feeling that, um, one thing it did for me, um, PJ, is that it made me look at my health in a new way. Before COVID, if I had something wrong, I would sit in the doctor's surgery, being confident in the knowledge that I would go in and she would say, it's X, Y, and Z, here's an antibiotic, here's a tablet, here's something you need to do, and go off and be fine again. But now, I suppose, I'm starting to think about what I can do to increase my own health, like in diet and exercise and, um, you know, stress relief and all those things. I think the positive thing that might come out of this is that we will look at our own health and Mm. immune systems, you know, in a more holistic way way so yeah. that's the way I look at it I think that, and, that could and be a maybe positive how to relax thing. and switch off and oh, get, out of, get out of your own head which in a way that's which where the brings the, us yes the, to, to the bird watching and I do remember <laughs> last year Birdwatch Ireland brought out a little chart and mm-hmm. it was in the height of spring and mm-hmm. the weather was the weather was gorgeous and there was all sorts of birds flying around so they came up with this uh, if you spot these birds in your garden take the chart and and just it was just a bit of fun but i remember mentioning at the time to to jim mm-hmm. wilson that the magpies were as big as bowling balls <laughs> and they were everywhere you you everywhere. you you looked at magpies in a whole new light last year a whole new light and they were everywhere my lovely sister-in-law, she used to ring me up and she said, I swear to God, the same magpie was coming into the garden to gold me because you know the old rhyme, one for sorrow, two for joy. Yes. And I think whenever I see a single magpie, I kind of wave at it because of that. But You're not the there only were, one. Loads of people yeah, but there were, yeah, there were so many of them that you go, every time I looked out, there were, oh, actually many of them came in pairs. And as you say, big as bowling balls. But I started to look at um, how beautiful they are. They are gorgeous. These iridescent feathers, you know, and they're so clever. One day um, I'm I'm speaking to you from my makeshift office in the bedroom, looking out through the slats of um, Venetian blinds. And I can see the roof of our battered shelf, our battered um, shed. 
And one day there were two of them and they had stolen my Jack Russell's dog chew and taken it up to the the roof and were I just was very impressed by that. And I started to read about Corvids as opposed to COVID, which is a, a great relief. And Corvids are the family of um, crows and ravens and magpies. And they are so clever. Some of them can make tools. Um, some of them, they will get to know you, um, particularly if you give them food. And I read scientists found that they actually recognize your car um, coming back from work and they'll come and say, OK, there's a chance of getting food here. And I just thought that was yeah. fascinating. This they whole also, new world opening just, up just, to us. Just yesterday, I, I was looking yeah. out one of our upstairs windows here and we've got a yes. big green across the road and there was... And I pointed out to the missus, I, I, there was a there was a, a, a magpie, a mm-hmm. big, big magpie. He was the size of a small cat, <laughs> strolling, strutting up the middle yeah. of the green as if he owned the place. Yeah, it's, time, it's the time for magpies. <laughs> but the beautiful thing about that is it is also the time for many other birds. Um, yes. Somebody told me about uh, Niger seed, which is what goldfinches like. And I thought you had to be like David Attenborough or kind of a bird whisperer to attract these very beautiful, glorious creatures into the garden. And I simply filled up a bird feeder with this um, Niger seed. And it was like at the kitchen window, one day there were eight birds, um, goldfinches, at the feeder. And I just found it magical, you know. Um, So I said, quick, come and look. And I could see how they had come bobbing from the telegraph uh, wire as if they'd got news. There's good talk going on in in this garden. Come on, you know. (laughs) And you mentioned Birdwatch Ireland. I went on to Birdwatch Ireland too and was fascinated to find that the collective noun for goldfinches is a charm of goldfinches, which seemed to me, yeah, it seemed to me to be terribly apt. And by the way, the collective noun for magpies, seeing as we need it, is a tiding of magpies, which is quite sweet. A tiding of magpies, yes. As opposed to a murder of crows. A murder of crows or an unkindness of ravens. You know, really? that's a bit unfair. Yeah, and unkindness of ravens. Yeah. <laughs> the so things pass, we learn. So it, it, it passes the time and, and it, it, it sends the minds in other directions and it, it can be quite relaxing. And a, and a lot of fun. Claude, believe it or not, you're the gift that keeps on giving today because also um, I wanted to ask you about your own experience. You you come from, as they say, Pats on the Nevins Road. I do. Don't you? Yeah. Yes, I'm affected by all the issues of the day today, am I? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, I was born in a mother and baby's home. So uh, it has been very comforting to look out the bir- at the birds because the last few days have been uh, difficult. Um, it's been like a body blow. But um, there's one thing I want to say is there are so many unanswered questions still. But um, I was absolutely blown away by Micheál Martin's apology in the door. Um, that man spoke from the heart and I felt it in my own heart. And whatever, the, there's so much more that needs to be done. But four years ago, PJ, I wrote about this actually, saying I was an adopted person and, well, it took me seven years to get a response 
from one of the state's agency about my own birth records. But I did get a response. Many people have waited decades. And nobody, that article, you know, nobody, My I remember people saying, oh, are you still on about that? And eight years before that, um, Conal O'Faherta, who's done fantastic work in the Irish Examiner writing about illegal adoptions, said he wrote about illegal adoptions and there wasn't a whisper. I never thought I would see the day that this would be centre stage and everybody's talking about it. And I was speaking to friends who've never spoken about it. And we were just talking about, yes, the, the trauma and the unanswered questions and our own particular journeys. But to hear the Taoiseach of the day stand up and say, the state was wrong to do what it did. You are blameless. That is that is uh, something to mark. And I think it's a real, it's a real starting point for real change. Okay. That's an interesting take on it. Claude, yeah. great talking to you. And thank you, you. I hope that I hope these symptoms disappear. Oh, so. sure. Listen, listen. I'm I'm sitting. I'm for the birds in more ways than one. I'm sitting here looking out at them now. So, yeah, I think Enjoyed it's it. a very tough time for everybody. So I would say, um, you know, for so many different reasons, is to seek out the small pleasures and the tiny joys that are all around us. So we'll end on that positive note. Absolutely. Claude, great talking to you and thank you very you much. You too. Thanks a million. Cheerio. That's Claude Finn. 1850-715-996. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With Lehan Motors, leading the way for Toyota hybrids. The place to order your 211 Toyota. See lehanmotors.ie. Access all areas on Cork's 96FM. Your guide to nightlife on side. Hi, it's Michael here with an update on Cork's entertainment. One of Ireland's finest troubadours, Damien Dempsey, is set to return to Cork this May for an intimate show at Cypress Avenue. Damien's last visit to Cork was when he played live at the Marquee and tickets for this one are now on sale from cypressavenue.ie Access all areas. Rescheduled from October, Mary Black returns to Cork Opera House on Friday, May 14th. Mary will be back with her all-star band, playing favourite songs from an immense back catalogue, as well as showcasing songs from her new album. Access all areas. Feel free to let us know at Access All Areas if you have a show coming up in 2021 or any live streaming events by emailing aaa at 96fm.ie. Access all areas. Your guide to nightlife on the side. On Cork's 96FM. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850 715 996. On Cork's 96FM. Something we did frequently during the first wave of COVID last year and the first lockdown when people were struggling to cope with the limits placed upon their lives and and the stress of it all and the fear there was genuine fear there in the first wave we used to read out a set of numbers at the at various junctures in the program and remind people that they were there and there was help and all that one of them was a crisis text line for frontline workers um, and it was a number where you could just literally, when you get in from a very hard shift on the front line, you could just text this number and someone would get back to you. And it was someone to talk to who, who, who kind of could empathise with what you were going through. Now, we just have to look at the news and read the newspapers and see the pictures to know that our frontliners are at it again. 
hard at it. Many of them are sick. Many of them are struggling. And those that are left who aren't sick are overworked uh, beyond all description. And that text line, I'm delighted to say, is still open. Nicole Forster is the head of the supervision. Nicole, good morning to you. Good morning, how are you? Good. That text line must be very, very busy at the moment. Yes, we're very busy um, at the moment, and we've been busy um, all through um, December really as well. So um, just keeping up with um, people, kind of coping with the lockdown and the uncertainty of the next few months. How does it work? Uh, how it works is that you text into 50808 and you'll get a series of system messages that just let you know our terms of service and then you'll be connected to a crisis volunteer who will introduce themselves to you and you can uh, then share what you're going through and the crisis volunteer will just work with you um, to learn a little bit more about what you're going through, explore um, maybe some coping strategies that you can use going forward and then um, invite you back to use us anytime you feel like you just need to uh, talk about what's going on for you in that moment of uh, panic or crisis or just stress. Is is it a place where a person who's had a particularly difficult shift, say as a as an ICU nurse, can just vent or cry or talk it out? Absolutely, um, we're seeing that more and more. That um, once people are uh, off of their shift, they're texting in just to be able to share confidentially about what they're experiencing and um, the level of. Um, stress and fear that they're going through when they're working these shifts and um, we're here just to listen and to support without judgment or um, having to know who someone is who's sharing with us so it's all confidential and we're here just to listen in the moments that people need us. Without breaking anybody's confidence what kind of things are coming up at the moment? Um, a lot of things are coming up for a lot of different people, um, people who work on the front lines in terms of um, childcare, being uncertain about um, how they're going to be able to get into work uh, is something safely if they need to use public transit. Um, also, struggles with relationships and within um, confined spaces of houses, um, people are texting in generally about uncertainty about college or school and what what their courses are going to look like um, going forward. We're also seeing a lot of stress around um, people just not knowing what to do, people who have lost their jobs and how to um, apply for uh, social welfare payments and things like that. Um, and we're also seeing people who are feeling like um, suicidal or who are self-harming as well. If something comes up that you people can't deal with, do, do you point someone in, in the direction of someone who might be able to help? Absolutely. We, in every conversation, we try to give people links to organizations and services that would be able to continue um, the work that we do with um, any, anyone in a conversation just about coping strategies. And um, for some people, it's pointing them in the direction of how to apply for payments or how to continue um, working, getting linked in with counsellors, um, things like that. Okay. If anybody does need to uh, contact you today, right now, what is the number and when is it, when, when is it available? 
Um, so we're a 24-hour service, 365 days a year, and the number is 50808. And if you just text hello, you'll be connected with a crisis volunteer immediately. Okay, listen, thank you for that, Nicole. Appreciate it. Nicole Forster from that crisis text line 50808. Just text the word hello. And it's not just doctors and nurses. They have all sorts of help for all sorts of people, which is a wonderful idea. Text hello to 50808. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Courts 96 FM. It is, as they say, an absolute lasher of a morning out there this morning now. Eight or nine degrees, as Pierce said, and the sun, well, it's here in Coogan Towers anyway, the sun is beaming in the windows. It's a gorgeous morning. Uh, let's hope it stays that way. It's going to get very cold, they're telling us again next week. Alan from Carlo Weather was tweeting there the last few days that this huge weather system, have you seen the snow in Spain? Like, it's just demented out there. Hi, Viv, if you're listening, by the way. In Madrid, I hope everyone is safe and well. Buenos dias. Spain's in the grip of a huge uh, weather system at the moment. They've had snow in places they haven't seen snow for, for years. And Alan from Carlo Weather was kind of saying it could come our way next week. It doesn't look good, but was too far away for him to make an accurate prediction. Uh, but it is going to get colder over the next few days. We might catch up with him again or another one of our weather people to see is the pattern any clearer at this stage 1850-715-996 the number the text or whatsapp 083-396-9696 the email opinion at 96fm.ie into our third hour for this Thursday if you've missed anything from the first two hours of the programme if you caught something at the tail end of it or just had to go away in the middle of it where's your note from your parents but if you did miss anything if you did miss anything, you can catch it on our podcast, which will be uh, available to you in the early afternoon. It goes up first on Twitter. We'll tweet the link, and then you can go to the Course 96 FM app or the website or wherever you get uh, your podcasts on a regular basis. That uh, podcast available every day in, the, in or around the early afternoon. Here's a story that came into us on the telephone, and I can identify with it, and I can tell you that I 100% believe this story because I heard something very similar. A caller was in a hospital in 1985. In the bed next to her was a woman who was from another county but who was living in Dublin. She had signed forms to have her baby adopted but the minute she saw the baby she changed her mind and she didn't want to have the baby adopted. The caller said to that woman Uh, there and then look just keep in touch let me know how you get on now she had never heard from her since but she contacted her again and the woman said I remember you I just wanted to tell you you were the only friend I had when I needed one she said that the baby had died they didn't tell her where the baby was buried Uh, she didn't see the baby die she never saw the body she was never given a location for the burial of the baby she moved on to London and she got married but it's been in her mind ever since did that baby actually die and the woman had signed the form that was all that was needed but they told her then that the baby had died and our caller uh, wonders to this day what exactly did happen to that baby I'll share another story briefly on the back of that one. And 
I'll share it with the proviso that what happened here is something that shouldn't happen and would be ill-advised. So by anybody tracing their past, when you come up with a name and an address, no one would ever advocate that you go and knock on that door. There are ways and means to contact the person, but you don't. Good practice is not that you walk up and knock on the door. I'll say that just to, to kick it off. But the story I heard was from a woman who is in her 30s. It's a number of years ago now. She was in her in her 30s. And she had searched and searched and searched and searched. And she got help along the way from what we call the search angels. So she'd managed to put together a lot of information about her mother. And she'd managed to pin it down to an address in a town in the Midlands. And that's all I will say. I know the town. It has a railway station, put it that way. So she got a train, got on a train, and she went to the town, and she went to the door. Now, again, we would never advocate that you do that. She went to the door, and she knocked on the door, and a woman came to the door. And she said, and we'll call her Mrs. Murphy. She said, I'm looking for Mrs. Murphy. And the woman who answered the door said, oh, I'm so sorry, she moved out of here three or four months ago. We bought the house from her. And the woman who had gone to the trouble of finding the house burst into tears and lost it on the doorstep. So the kindly lady who opened the door called her in and said, look, come in, sit down, as we do in this country. Come in, sit down, have a cup of tea. Calm yourself, calm yourself. You want to calm yourself. So she, tea was produced, as always happens, and eventually the person who had come to the door had gathered herself together enough to tell why she was there. And she explained that she'd been searching for a very long time. And she explained that she got the information and she'd come and in sheer desperation she'd simply knocked on the door. And the woman who had opened the door put down her cup of tea and a tear rolled down her cheek and she said, My dear God Almighty... You're the one they told her was dead. So I believe those stories, all of them. 1850-715-996. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With Lehan Motors, leading the way for Toyota hybrids. The place to order your 211 Toyota. See lehanmotors.ie. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850-715-996. On Cork's 96FM. We were speaking earlier this morning to Dr. John Sheehan, and he told us how he got his own vaccine last weekend at the South Infirmary. He told us as well that his practice nurses and the other staff in his clinic are still waiting for their vaccines. That, that's one problem in itself. Stephen Donnelly, the Minister for Health, has been saying in the last 24 hours that about 4 million people will have their jabs by the end of September. There'll be 700,000 uh, doses here by the end of March, mostly for healthcare workers, frontliners, the most vulnerable, etc., etc. There are 3.7 million doses ordered between April and June, and then 3.8 million more between July and September. And these are all doses of the, the two injections, the, the two-injection vaccine. Uh, so the Pfizer, the Moderna, 
the AstraZeneca when it is approved. And as I say, Minister Donnelly saying that pretty much 4 million people having their jabs by the end of September. And, and Dr. Sheehan earlier on this morning was kind of agreeing with me. He said, look, most of us, August maybe, September before, in, in the general population, he was saying that there will be a clinic. They're looking at City Hall now as a clinic uh, for for huge numbers of vaccinations. But a man who's been a frequent guest on this programme since the, the very start of the pandemic is uh, Dr. Jack Lambert from The Matter in Dublin, a consultant in infectious diseases. Jack, good morning to you. Good morning. You believe there's not enough ambition in this plan and it'll take way too long. Yeah, I, 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 think, I think that this is the light at the end of the tunnel is as long as we want to make that tunnel. And I think all we can do to speed up that timeline is really important. And, and there are other countries that, you know, that bordering us, the UK has already vaccinated almost 3 million and a population of 50 million. And we're kind of, we're maybe a week or two behind the UK, but in terms of getting vaccine available, but, you know, we've got... 40,000 in the country and there's been lots of communications about you know plans for rollout but but there are different communications every day so I think we actually have to get our act together have be very transparent in terms of what we're planning and doing we need to have good a better communicating communication strategy and then we need to have communications going out on a regular basis so that people know what to expect healthcare workers know know what to expect GPs know when they can get a vaccine and the GPs can communicate with their patients as to when the vaccine is coming and where it's going to be done. We really need a detailed plan. It's a huge challenge for 4 million people plus two doses of the vaccine. Um, we've never done that. We've never done anything like that before. And people are skeptical that we're going to, you know, uh, do it right. Uh, but we do need to do it right. There's something that I discussed with, with Dr. Sheehan earlier on. Uh, he himself has a GP practice on the north side of our city here. He was vaccinated uh, last weekend. His practice nurse still hasn't been vaccinated. The other staff in his surgery still haven't been vaccinated. Now, to me, that seems a little bit daft. They should vaccinate them all at once so they can provide such an important frontline service. Would you agree with me? Well, I would 100% agree. I'm here at the matter, and, you know, we, we hear tweets coming from Cork University Hospital. They've vaccinated all 6,500 of their target. At the matter, we've, we've, we've been able to vaccinate less than half. We've got less than 3,000 of a planned 6,000 vaccinated. So it makes you nervous, and we were the front line in March and April. We were the epicenter of the National Isolation Unit. So, you know, there, it makes you nervous that if we're, we're, we're short supplies the vaccine, um, what's going to happen rolling out? We need. We really need to have somebody in charge, somebody getting a detailed plan together, and somebody prioritizing. We're all understanding if the vaccine is in short supply, but there needs to be some priority, and that, that needs to be abided by based on need. There's an insistence, I think, on behalf of the government that they're going to wait for two things to happen in every case. They're going to wait for the uh, European Union, the European Medicines Agency, to give each vaccine the stamp of approval. They are pre-ordering, but they're going to wait for the stamp of approval before they start to, to bring it in and roll it out. Should we be looking at going beyond that? Well, well, I, I think we should, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I mean, the, the, you know, the UK ordered 100 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine. We're part of kind of a European Union tender with 27 other countries plus, you know, um, uh, 
are we going to just take our quota or are we going to proactively, you know, see, for example, can, 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 can we beg, borrow and steal, uh, you know, five million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine through the, the, the UK tender? Because we are kind of, you know, part of, you know, uh, one Ireland, you know, north, south. So, so okay. I think, yeah, I think, we, I think we should take what we get from the European Union, but I think it would, we would fast track it quicker if we proactively looked to other options as well. Yeah, the point being made is that AstraZeneca, for example, I, I don't know if it's already in Northern Ireland, but it will be in there within days, Jack. Should we be looking to talk to our friends north of the border about maybe getting another batch and buying it in here and, you know, doing our own deals, as it were? I, I, I see no reason why not. I mean, one of my staff here in the, ho- in, in, in the hospital, her, her mom's in a nursing home in Armagh, and they, they've given second dose of vaccine to all the nursing homes. And then just two weeks ago, our government was talking about we're going to have all the nursing home vaccinated by the end of February. You know, so here we are on the, the, you know, the 14th of January, and they've already had the second dose of vaccine in the nursing homes in Northern Ireland. So, so yes, I think we should, we should do whatever it takes creatively um, to, to get everybody in Ireland vaccinated with European Union stock, with other stocks, because cause like I said, until then, I mean, the only light at the end of the tunnel is really having the, the whole 80% of our, of our population vaccinated. I'm pro-vaccination, um, but if, if we go slow, it'll take two years. If we go fast, like Israel did, Israel vac- have already vaccinated a million, and they're going to have their all 11 million vaccinated by the end of March. Um, you know, UK's vaccinated actually uh, almost 3 million now in a population of 50 million, and here we are, a population of 5 million, and we're talking about, I don't know how many, we're still waiting to hear how many, but maybe 40,000 vaccinated and the vaccine arrives on the 26th of December. So I think we, 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 this is an emergency. We need to do it right, but we need to do it quickly. Is it time to, like you said at the start, put someone in charge, reach out into the community of experts, put somebody in charge, if you like, give them a desk and say, right, in your case, say, Jack, you run it. You do what you need to do. You run it. We'll write the checks. Is that what it needs? I think it does, and it needs it needs it needs somebody to be accountable. The HSC is is a very complicated complicated structure. I've looked at the national strategy document, you know, for for COVID vaccines, and there's seven different streams, and there's a lead person for each of that, and there's a committee, and there's a group, and there's a chair. I think we actually need somebody. Uh, you know, a watchdog monitoring and making sure that everything's online, troubleshooting, prioritizing. And because cause if we get a message coming out every day from a different government member and a different, you know, HSE member uh, with a different message, you lose confidence. And if things go wrong, you know, you know, I think everybody would be forgiven if there was transparency and clear communication. You know, there's no guarantee that maybe there'll be a delay in the vaccines, you know. But right now, nobody knows what's going on. The GPs are calling the hospitals because they've been told maybe you can get a vaccine through the hospital. But the hospitals, we haven't vaccinated our high-risk individuals yet and and the gps can't communicate to the patients when they're going to get a vaccine if they don't even know when they're going to get a vaccine so yes we really need to have one voice you know kind of you know and and really clear communication and then make the government accountable or or actually work with the government to to you know to 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 share best experience and and assist in the rollout Mm. 
In terms of the where, where we find ourselves now, uh, Jack, uh, in, on the whatever date it is today, the 14th of, of January, we have about two and a bit weeks left in the current Level 5 restrictions. And I know I'm moving off the subject of vaccines for a moment. I will, I will come back. A number of your... Uh, a number of your peers in infectious diseases and epidemiology and other, and other disciplines like that are already sounding a warning that the 31st of January is not the time to be reopening. Would you, would you echo that? Well, like I said, we've, I'm not a fan of lockdown, but I'm, mm. I, I am a fan of really strict COVID prevention precautions, okay? And, you know, so, so if, if our numbers, you know, our numbers have not gone down from this lockdown, and it's because we really are not in level five lockdown. I go to work at the Matter. Back in the springtime, I was the only car on the road. I'm in rush hour traffic. It, you know, it, it, if I go at 6.45, there's, there's a queue of cars, uh, you know, in the morning. Uh, so there's a lot of non-essential people going to work. The virus is still circulating in the community. And, and the, if the numbers don't go down, yes, we can't go out of lockdown. We can't safely open up the schools if there's still a lot of young kids and young adults getting infected. And if you look at the numbers, there's a lot of, lot of kids getting infected and a lot of young adults get infected. So, yes, we can't go out of lockdown if, if we never went into lockdown. So, so I'm concerned that the virus is still circulating in the community. And I'm also concerned that this new virus is even more infectious than the first virus. And we'll go, so when we open up, we're going to actually have to enhance our COVID prevention strategies, you know, do the right thing in the schools and, and do the right things in any facility that we open up. And my concern is we weren't doing the right things in the first wave when the virus was, was less transmissible than it is now. Yeah. This new trend, are you referring to the the British variant or yep. the South African one? Well, both of them. Both of them appear to be even more infectious. You understand, you know, so, I, mean, I mean, we know about basic epidemiology, infectious diseases, you know. The more of a burden of disease you have, the more, more it can be transmitted. And this virus, you know, for example, it's replicating more. So it's probably, there's probably twice as much virus in a person, even somebody who's asymptomatic walking around. So they're more likely to infect other people. So yes, we, you know, you know, I think this virus is is even more transmissible, and this partially explains, you know, the the, the surge the surge in Ireland, you know, uh, that that we saw over the holidays because that virus is now increasing in in percentage in Ireland. But yes, we do need to. There is going to be concern going out of lockdown if the numbers don't drop and we don't abide by the lockdown. And I would say that we haven't religiously abided by the lockdown in the community. And, and as long as the numbers stay high, you can't come out of lockdown. The, the chief medical officer has reported in one of the papers this morning, Jack, as having ex- expressed his own concern that there are many, many people walking around, walking around who shouldn't be. They are asymptomatic, but they are infectious and they're still out and about when they shouldn't be. We also, because of the, uh, the way they had to restrict testing for close contacts, lots of people who were close contacts may be infectious and not, uh, and not know about it. Like, it's going to be very difficult to control this. Well, some countries have been able to control it, okay? So I think, you know, 
if you do all the right things, you can control it. And most people are doing the right thing. You know, even like even the Christmas outbreak that, you know, that the, the surge that happened around Christmas, it wasn't badly behaving people who are, it was just people who wanted to get together at Christmas and, and they did restrict their visitation, et cetera, et cetera. But this virus is hugely transmissible. People, people made just one mistake. So you have to be, you know, this virus requires almost 100% compliance. And that's hand washing, that's social distancing, that's, that, and you know, it, it's, the, it's the usual story. And, and people just haven't done it 100% right. And even in the hospital, I'm seeing staff who I think were doing all the right things and they, they still were managed to get infected. And I don't know if they get infected in the hospital or they got, got affected, you know, unknowingly in the community, but it's a very infectious virus. Um, so so I, I do share the concerns of the government because the longer it circulates, the more patients end up in the hospital, the more patients end up in the ICU. And we're actually handling, I think, the, gov- the, the country's handling the surge. It's concerning in the hospitals, but they're doing a really good job. I think hospitals all around the country uh, were better off now than we were in the first wave. Um, but we can't come out of, of lockdown um, with the numbers as they are uh, without additional preparation we need to prepare the schools better we need to prepare the gyms better we need to prepare you know all you know business uh, facilities better um i right before christmas I, I i go to the city center one in ten people washing their hands get into bookstores one in ten people washing their hands going into you know grocery stores it, you know uh, it needs to be a hundred percent okay Finally, to go back to vaccines, uh, Dr. Lambert, uh, Sean Duke is a science journalist. He's tweeting this morning and asking that we ask you about the potential danger of waiting too long between the first and second jabs in the two-dose vaccines. Could that be dangerous? Sean seems to think there's some evidence to suggest that it could actually cause another variant to emerge if we wait too long between the first and the second shot. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, if, look, look, you know, if you understand the principles of vaccinology, I, I don't really think that's a concern. I mean, I think the, the reality is, is that the first dose of these vaccines, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, gives you a really good antibody response. And then the second dose of the vaccine is actually trying to, you know, kind of boost that antibody response um, and and give you long lasting immunity, you know, because 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 natural immunity gives, you know, if you're infected, you're probably protected for a period of six to 12 months, but not for longer. So, so I don't think, I don't think that's a, that's a scientific issue, you know, in terms of delaying, but, but the UK is delaying given a second dose of vaccine, but these vaccines have been studied with zero in three weeks. And I think the Irish government appropriately decided to stick with that. The AstraZeneca vaccine, if it comes along, I think there's more ability to to vary in terms of, of of dosing of after the first vaccine but but i don't think there's an issue of 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 the timing necessarily causing more resistant virus okay listen dr jack lambert as always thank you very much for your time this morning thank you it's a pleasure to have him on dr jack lambert consultant in infectious diseases at the matter hospital what he's saying is what a lot of people have been saying go into the community go into the scientific community Go to Jack Lambert, go to Sam McConkie, go to Tomas Ryan, go to Anthony Staines, go to someone, Catherine Motherway, go to someone who is on the front line dealing with this and ask them on behalf of the state, pay them, ask them to take over the implementation 
of the vaccine programme and you say, you just tell us what you need. We'll provide it. That's what has to happen. I totally agree with Dr Lambert on that. Just in the north, their health minister has said that more than 100,000 vaccinations have now been administered. Uh, 95% of their care homes have had the first dose and 67% have had the second uh, a couple of weeks into it. 1850-715-996. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With Lehan Motors, leading the way for Toyota hybrids. The place to order your 211 Toyota. See lehanmotors.ie. Let me show you what it's all about. Simon Murdoch and the best music mix. Weekdays from midday on Cork's 96FM. Getting you through the afternoon with the best tunes from the biggest stars. So if you're juggling working from home with the kids in the house as well if you're on the road or if you just need something to beat that afternoon slump I got it for you Miley's gonna be here I know I'm really weird are you sure you wanna have me on this show Niall Horan too we met on social media slid into his DMs the best tunes cracking competitions on your radio in the afternoon see you then let me show you what it's all about check it out Simon Murdoch midday to 4pm on Cork's 96FM this is Cork's Gold Imro Award winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083 396 On Cork's 96FM. I've seen a picture there on my timeline of the lower road that there's a, a vehicle, a truck has struck the bridge down there again. I can remember this happening in the 90s, uh, and it's still happening. Uh, bridge strike down at the lower road there by the railway station and that holds everything up for ages so here's hoping a that no one has been hurt although they generally aren't and that they can get that truck out from there as soon as possible just on the comments of dr jack lambert i'm listening to the show i agree with him myself and my husband feel there is no level five lockdown we go to work early in the morning just after half six and it's busy on the roads we go walking wearing our masks outside because it's very busy and people are not social distancing. They're chatting as if there's no pandemic or no level five. That comes from Linda. PJ, I have to agree with the doctor. In the first lockdown, you wouldn't hear a car. We're not in level five. The traffic in Blackpool is unreal. Where is everybody going? On vaccines, Tom wants to know, does anyone plan what, know what's happening with the previously announced idea to use the army? They would have logistics, first aid, medical skills. I don't see them being used at all so far. Again, if someone was in charge, that someone could say, OK, we need a couple of battalions of soldiers to sort this out. Use their logistics, use their planning skills, use their distribution skills, absolutely, and use their first aid skills as well. Good idea, Tom. There's lots more coming in. On uh, when are all the home helps going to be vaccinated? They're caring for the people the government are trying to protect. Why have all the admin staff in the hospitals even been vaccinated when they have no patient contact? Well, hospital staff, whoever sent in that mail, hospital staff should be vaccinated across the board. Because just because you're behind the admin desk in the hospital doesn't mean you're not vulnerable with a virus circulating in the hospital on staff shortages, frontline workers, greedy, mean employers not paying uh, a paying agreement since last October. That's, that's, a, that's a different different thing. I'll, I'll have to read it over. Speaking of pay agreements and deals, I don't know how many days it is now 
since the Debenham workers went out on strike. I know that Christmas Day was 260 days, so add 14 days to that and add 21. So we're looking at about day 280 at this stage of the Debenham's strike. And 91% of the striking workers voted against the latest offer put on the table or the latest plan put on the table. Mandate, the union, is now writing to Michal Martin to inform him and also to say, why not turn the three million that was offered for upskilling courses into cash for the former workers and also to implement the Cattle Duffy Bill sooner rather than later. Let's go to uh, Valerie Conlon of Debenhams uh, and Mandate. Val, good morning. Good morning, how are you? And still, still there, still, still, still yeah. going on. Yes. The the the, the 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 three million put forward by by Kevin Foley as a compromise has been roundly rejected. Yeah, ninety one percent. That's a very big uh, percentage to refuse any ballot. It's probably one of our biggest ones for any time I've balloted in work and whatever. So ninety one percent is it'll just tell you how people are feeling. Out of how many people voted? Uh, 430. Okay, okay. so that's a very sizable a yeah. sizable sample. Yeah. yeah. Remind listeners again, Valerie, what the Cattle Duffy Bill is. Well, it was, uh, it, came, it was meant to be implemented for the clearies when clearies closed down. It's just to help any workers that would have had uh, collective agreements that they would get what they're entitled to. And it's been sitting on a shelf since 2016. Mm-hmm. Inigail were meant to bring it in and they never did and now here we are we were promised that it would be probably uh, looked at for late late autumn and we're in January and still nothing done about it And that bill would allow if I understand correctly that bill would allow the agreement made back in 2016 the 2 plus 2 of which we've talked many times that would allow that bill or would allow that agreement to be implemented for you and, and, and give you the Compensation. Yeah, it now, was, it's more or less to bring the the um, to bring us on top of the creditors list, bring in all employees on top of the creditors list, mm-hmm. rather than how far we are down there now at the moment. Now, do you accept that if all Kevin Foley can get is what he's got, do you accept that? Yes, and like we've always said that Kevin Foley has done what he could for us. And these talks were going on a lot. When we were doing the talks with him, they were going along a much different path. And he'd done a complete U-turn when he started talking to the government. And it was the government that changed everything. And it's the government that offered then the three million upskilling. upskilling. So, like, we're not, Kevin Foley has nothing at all to do with this. He has done what he could for us. And we respect yeah. him for it, but it's the government mm. that's at fault here. You you accept that both he and the government, though, must work within corporate law? I we understand that, and I know that. But you know what? Now there's precedent being set all over the place this year, and surely, be to God, we have come down from two plus two to come come down to three million. We are willing to negotiate. Obviously, the mm. government isn't. Like the, the where did they? get that three million from to, to put it into courses if you want but you see it was never explained to us so we were told this offer was on the table but it wasn't until after the ballot then that things would be explained to us properly now it was for courses we weren't told where the money came from we weren't told how it was going to be drawn down or anything like that 
And and you're what you're saying to the government now is, look, Mr. Foley has done his job. We accept that he's done his job to the best of his ability within the within the limitations before him. Take that three million and turn it into cash exactly. for us. Exactly. Yeah. It's a quarter of the amount that we would have been looking for. Yeah. A quarter of the amount. So what happens now, Val? So we're back on the picket lines. Obviously, we have to be very careful with the COVID numbers, and we're very conscious of that. So whereas we have four or five people at any one stage, now we only have two people. Um, we're staying down the lane, and they're doing their walks around the store then. Uh, obviously, social distancing, because we have to be careful. And I, I, I can't be taking responsibility because it's not fair on people. They're going home to their families. So we, I have to be careful, and I have to work with what we have as well. So that's why we made the decision just to have two people at any stage on the lane. And we're in around 280 days here. Yeah, it's exactly 280 days today. Your maths are marvellous. And any, any, any move since now, any response since? Like, have, has anyone responded yes to your ballot yesterday? Uh, no, no. Uh, KPMG were told, Kevin Foley was obviously told, and he thanked us for letting him know. And um, obviously the government are, are after getting the email from Jerry Light yesterday. Okay, okay. Well, we'll have to see where it goes. We've been following it all along. We'll continue to do so. Valerie, thank you very much. Thank you. That's Valerie Conlon, uh, mandate chap steward with, with Debitums. A lot of comment on social media about Kevin Foley and, and some people were referring to him as the Taoiseach appointed Kevin Foley. You can hear it very clearly there. They accept that Mr. Foley has done the, his job to the best of his ability with the, uh, with the limitations placed upon him and the resources at his disposal. So they have no difficulty with the job done uh, by Kevin Foley. What they're now saying is if that's the best that Kevin Foley can negotiate, back to you, government. Let's see, can you do better than that? The three million that they found for upskilling and for courses, they now say to the government, right, look, Forget about the 2 plus 2. We'll walk away without the 2 plus 2. Give us the 3 million divided among us. That's where they want to go now. 1850-715-996. Mick has been on from Balifahan. He says, I, for one, will not be taking a vaccine. And I know others will not. If PJ does want to take it, that's his own business. Although I would encourage him not to. But why do you have to speak for all of us when talking about them? You know well that plenty won't take them. I do, Mick, and, and it troubles me. If people don't want to take them, that's a matter for the men. That's a matter for them. I will, if necessary, take a half a dozen of them live on air on webcam. I don't care. I don't care. I want my vaccine. I want it as soon as I can get it. I know lots of other people who do too. You don't? That's your right, Mick, entirely. I don't know why. I've no idea why, but you don't. That's okay too. 1850-715-996. The, the concept of friendship has changed. Uh, before the days of social media and 24-hour communication, we probably had a, a half a dozen friends. If you came through life and you got to my age or around it with a half a dozen solid friends, you'd done well in life. Now people have hundreds of friends, dozens of them, teenagers and young people have circles of friends, wide circles of friends. How many of them are real friends? And how can you tell the real friend 
from the fake? And how can you tell when you found someone that you want to keep in your life and maybe be part of your life and someone that you need to get away from quick? These days, there's so much uh, different ways to make friends and all that that you need a coach. Sarah Cooney, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. How are you? Good. Thank you very much. The, 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 the concept of friendship has changed. I have friends in my life, a number of friends, that go back 30, 35 years. Um, but nowadays, people have dozens of friends, but they're not really friends, are they? No, and I suppose there's one important thing to be aware of when it comes to friendships is that there's different types of friendships. Um, you know, you have your acquaintances, you have your very close friends, and um, also that friendships will come and go as your life progresses. And they'll also, you'll also have those friendships that will be lifelong friendships. So it's very important to just be aware of what are your expectations within those friendships. Um, and you talked about fake friends and how do you know the difference. Um, I suppose the the main thing to know is that friendship is built upon common ground, connection and shared values and mutual respect as well. And I think we all know when we're not being respected or when those kind of shared values or the common ground is kind of slipping a bit. Um, so I think those are really important things to be aware of, like... If you are changing to please somebody and keep their friendship, that's not a friend. No, absolutely not. And if you're sacrificing your integrity and your authenticity and who you are, I'd be questioning why do you have to do that? You know, what kind of pressure is being put on you to conform to what the other person is expecting of you? You know, and there's kind of a there would be a question of a power balance there within that relationship um, or friendship. You know, there's always a power balance in every relationship that we have. But when it, get, when it gets really imbalanced, I'd really be questioning that and looking at yourself and why you feel that you have to please this person or look for their approval. How has social media and the change in how we communicate, how has it, how has it changed at all? It has changed it absolutely massively. I mean, if you go back, you know, 30, 40 years ago, there was no social media as such. And um, friendships were, I suppose, a lot more authentic in that friendships were based on physical meeting up, phys- you know, connections and spending time together. Whereas now an awful lot of friendships have moved online and it's less, um, I suppose, less firm, if, if that makes sense. Um, you know, there's there's a lot more engagement online, and we're a lot. We feel like we have the people closer to us, but there isn't a lot of substance to those friendships if you're not backing it up with spending time together with your friends. Now, I know that is very hard at the moment, and this is a huge struggle for people. But all we can do at the moment is just keep that connection going as much as possible. Keep checking in with people. I know a lot of my friends, when I ring them and I text them, we're all saying, I've no news. I'm going to head away. But even just that little connection to show that you're thinking about people is so important. And it does make people feel like they're cared for. If you've been friends with someone for a while, uh, but you now are realising that they're changing 
in a way that you no longer like and you don't want them in your life anymore. How do you do that? Do you, do you just, as it were, ghost them or do you try to have a conversation with them? I wouldn't recommend or advocate ghosting. Um, I think that's, it depends. You see, it depends on how, what kind of path the friendship is taking. Is it a gradual distancing or is there a falling out? Um, the first thing I'd be saying to people is have a look at yourself and how are you feeling about it and are you feeling resistant, are you feeling uncomfortable and how is your friend treating you, you know, because I think a really important thing to bear in mind is boundaries. So what are you willing to tolerate and what are you not? And um, I'd be saying communication is the best way around it, but sometimes communication isn't possible. So it's, it's a very individual thing. I would say be respectful, keep your integrity, treat the other person with respect because you never know what somebody is going through behind closed doors. We're not always very open about our trials and tribulations and challenges, so please bear in mind that the other person might be going through something really deep and dark that we don't know about. Um, Go with your gut as well. I would go is it okay to move away from someone, particularly someone that you've only been friends, and this is common enough these days, they're only friends through, say, Facebook. You've never actually met. They live quite a distance away. You haven't seen them ever or for a long time. Is it okay to just defriend and quietly move on? Like they, 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 may never, they may never know you did that. Absolutely. And I mean, I think we do that on social media quite a bit. You know, if there's somebody that you're following that you feel isn't adding value to your experience or your life, we unfollow them and if it's a person that you're fr- Facebook acquaintances with or whatever um, and that you don't engage with then absolutely and if they're not going to know the difference anyway you know I think a friendship has certain qualities and engagement and connection is a huge part of that so I don't think there's anything lost there by just unfriending someone that you don't have a lot of engagement with. If, if, if I handed you a piece of paper or you handed the piece of paper to me and said, write down the list of your most precious friends, should that be a short or a long list? It really depends. Um, like, circles of friends vary, I'm sorry, vary widely. Um, some people have, we'd say, two or three very close friends. And some people have, you know, a wider circle of friends and they interact with all of them. I don't think there's any set rule or expectation. You do you is what I'd be saying. You know, is, do is it what, dangerous to put too much stock in one friend, say? Well, it depends on, again, boundaries. You know, are you depending on that person too much is what I'd be questioning. Um, it's great to have a best friend, a close friend that... You know, you both rely on each other and it's healthy and it's, you know, Mm. it's not like a codependent relationship where you're possessive of the person and they can't do what they want to do or vice versa. That's not very healthy and that's not, that's something I would be questioning. There's a a kind of a one special friend thing and at the the detriment of all others, that's not necessarily healthy, although it it can be quite common these days. I'm going to leave it for there there for now, Sarah. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Uh, Wise advice. Choose your friends wisely uh, and, and count them. Count them carefully. Uh, having hundreds isn't necessarily the way to go. That's it, a good way on which to end the programme, edited by Terry Brennan, produced and researched by Fergal Barry. And we'll talk to you tomorrow, just after nine.